Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I want it. I would want it. I would buy one. <laughs> if they want, it would have won one, I would have bid for one on eBay. I would have been checking eBay, waiting for it to come up, and I absolutely would buy one, and I would wear one. I would wear it. A summer league ring is, like, funny. Like, you could wear it out. <laughs> you could dent it up. You could lose it. Yeah, like, to a date or to dinner or to a meeting or something. What's that? Oh, this? This is my summer league championship ring from the New York Knicks, 2022 Summer League Knicks. They won the championship. Check this out. Welcome to Take Line. I am Jason Concepcion, riding solo this week. Today's episode is super fun. International episode. Have you ever wanted to travel the European continent from Scotland to Russia? Guess what? We're going to do it today. PGA Live and the British Open. Top of mind after this weekend's events at St. Andrews, the classic birthplace of golf. And then we go to the icy in more ways than one. Fields of Russia, where uh, Brittany Griner's case drags on. We will be talking to William Butler, professor of law at Penn State University, who's also a Russian law expert, spent some time over there during the Sputnik era. Uh, but first, congratulations, fine, to the Portland Trailblazers. They won the NBA Summer League Finals. Big deal over the New York Knicks. It was a blowout. The Summer League Final doesn't matter. Yes, they have rings. Doesn't fucking matter. I don't care about it unless the Knicks win. If the Knicks would have won, I would have kind of cared about it, but they didn't win, so fuck them. Here to talk about the Knicks, what's going on with the Donovan Spida Mitchell situation, how they feel about giving out rings in the Summer League, our super producers, Zuri and Ryan. Ryan and Zuri, welcome to Take Line. What are your thoughts on the, on the Summer League finals. Did you watch it? Number one, it's not a big deal if you didn't watch it. I, I I checked in on it. And as the Blazers were, first of all, like double teaming Quentin Grimes, this is insane. Why are you doing this in the summer league finals too? It, I am, I am Devin Booker when it comes to double teaming in the summer league. Uh, but it's not, it wasn't like the, you know, like if you didn't watch it, it's fine. But what were your thoughts? Ryan, what were your thoughts? As a Knicks fan, what were your thoughts? As a Knicks fan, I did watch it because I care about the exploits of our younger players. I'm a big fan of the Knicks youth movement. And so Me too. McBride and Jericho Sims and Quentin Grimes, these are guys that I was paying attention to last year in Madison Square Garden in Westchester. And once I saw that they were in the championship, you know, obviously it's tiebreakers and point differential that put them there. But a three and one record, I was like, all right, youth movement is going well. Danny Ainge is watching and maybe he's realizing that there are other players that we can throw into the spider deal to make things work. Nobody hurt their trade stock. Quentin Grimes getting double teamed in the finals. I mean, honestly, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a mark of respect. I fucking agree. They double teamed Quentin Grimes. I love that for him. So I, I was happy with it. I was happy with the experience. I'm happy not to win those rings. 
don't need any <laughs> first Knicks rings in 50 years of summer league. I want it. I would want it. I would buy one. <laughs> if they want, it would have won one, I would have bid for one on eBay. I would have been checking eBay, waiting for it to come up, and I absolutely would buy one, and I would wear one. I would wear it. A summer league ring is, like, funny. Like, you could wear it out. <laughs> you could dent it up. You could lose it. Yeah, yeah, like, to a date or to dinner or to a meeting or something. What's that? Oh, this this is my summer league championship ring from the New York Knicks, 2022 summer league Knicks. They won the championship. Check this I out. I mean, if you're, like, the video coordinator at the end of the bench, I think it's probably a good thing. Um, I was traveling. I saw it after the fact. I'm curious, though. You brought up Donovan. Yeah. You two Knicks fans. Who are you guys willing to part ways with? We know that Utah wants a bunch of players, but who are you guys okay with losing in a potential Donovan trade from the Knicks side? Wow. Well, first of all, let me say that Donovan Mitchell is better than anybody we have, right? So, of course, in a vacuum, you'd want Donovan Mitchell. The issue is the price. I'm going to start with the negatives first because I would I would enjoy Donovan on the team, but it's not a knockout deal. Would I be looking forward to having the smallest backcourt in the league? <laughs> no. You know, Donovan Mitchell's like 6'1-ish. Yep. Uh, Jalen Brunson is lying about his height, <laughs> however tall he is, how whatever he's listed at, he's lying. Guarantee you 1,100% he's lying. Um Defensively, obviously, there are going to be various issues. I think Donovan, coming out of college, he was more valued for his defensive potential than his scoring potential coming out of college. He has a 6'10 wingspan. Like, he has the athleticism and the reach to theoretically be at least an average defender. Has it been that, as evidenced by the fact that his potential backcourt teammate, Jalen Brunson, averaged, you know, 30-something on him in the playoffs just a few months ago? Um, so that's a negative. And with Tom Thibodeau, you can see that being an issue. The other negative is that the Knicks have, I can't remember the last time the Knicks like developed some guys, developed a core of players. And usually what happens is they draft some nice complimentary players who they decline to develop. And then they go off and have great careers elsewhere. Trevor Ariza is a great example of this. Looking at the kind of potential they have, obviously Obi Toppin in very focused minutes down the stretch last season appears to have difference-making offensive potential. Emmanuel quickly has shown that there is something there like a 3 and D player, certainly with his, with his reach. Maybe not a playmaker, but a wing defender and shot maker. And I love that floater. Quentin Grimes, as he showed in the Summer League Finals, is a guy who maybe has more than just three and D potential. So I'd love to see them hold on to their players. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion is Danny Ainge doesn't even care. He doesn't give a shit about Quentin Grimes. He doesn't care about Emmanuel quickly. Maybe cares about Obi Toppin, but Danny Ainge wants to bottom out. He wants to get into that uh, Wambayana sweepstakes just like the Spurs are trying to do right now. He doesn't want to go on a halfway rebuild or even a one-eighth or one-quarter rebuild with some nice talent that could potentially swing one or two games down. The he wants to lose games, and he cares about picks. So I feel like this is a doable – it's going to drag out, obviously, for a while because I think if you're Danny Ainge, you're going to look around and say, okay, can I get a better package somewhere else? Can I get a better package of picks somewhere else? Can I get some more unprotected – that's what he wants is these unprotected picks, which is how he built the Celtics with the additions of Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum through picks acquired from other places. 
I think that's what he wants. So I think that there's a world where we can hold on to the players that we really want to hold on to and just knock Danny out with picks by either reducing the protections on the ones that we own and and are passing to him or just give him more. So my feeling is that the Knicks have, weirdly, a little bit of leverage because Clearly, Mitchell wants to come here. He's building a house here. He's a Mets fan. It's in the blood. (laughs) And I think we have what Danny Ainge wants. So I think that this will happen. And listen, is Randall, Mitchell, and Brunson even an Eastern Conference Finals trio? I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. But it's better than what we have now, and I would enjoy watching it. So there's that. Ryan, what are your thoughts? No, same line, same page on almost all of it. When it comes to the picks... On draft night, you know, we were ready to skewer Leon Rose and company for trading out of the pick that we had and amassing the picks at the way they did. So I'm not now going to like hold on to those on some type of like, no, we need to like hold on to all the firsts we have because we're building a youth core. This isn't a mellow situation. We don't have to gut the roster to acquire the star. And the picks that we have aren't so near and dear to my heart. And even the unprotected Knicks picks. I mean, the idea here is to not be a trash team, which would intrinsically (laughs) make those picks, you know, on the bottom half of the league. So even those picks, I'm not going to sit here and hold on to too tight and cost myself the chance of bringing in a star because not only would he be in a vacuum, the best player on the Knicks, but if you can bring him in and mix him with the youth movement that's going on right now, I think that is a cauldron that could in the future attract another star once we get out from this Randall situation, which still has to happen. I mean, that's to me the biggest, really, because I have gotten to a place where I feel like, to your point, it's not going to be a mellow thing where we gut our team. I think we're going to be able to hold on to our team because Ainge, again, does not want players back. Obviously, someone like Fournier will go to make the salaries work. The real question I have, and it's the same thing with Brunson, is like, man, The fit with Randall is the question. Randall had his best year ever in his career as a member of the Knicks because they just put the ball in his hands and were like, go to work. That, even with just Brunson in the mix, is not going to be the case this season. And it will Randall be able to be more efficient with his touches and find a way to impact the game that's maybe not just about scoring Mm -hmm. on on trash turnarounds (laughs) and spin moves that he doesn't have in his bag? (laughs) Uh, that's the question is the fit with Randall. The fit with Randall looms as potentially the biggest question. Obviously it feels like we're skipping steps because Mitchell is not on the team, but it's a question that hangs over Brunson's fit with the Knicks and potentially any other stars fit with the Knicks. If Julius Randall's going to be on the roster, can they play with Julius? Can they play with Julius? Those are three guys that need the ball in their hand, right? Julius Mitchell and, and Brunson. I mean, but Julius, isn't it just keeping him happy? Isn't he just a better player when he wants to be there? Is it, much more complicated than that. That's so much of the equation, right? Because, the, I mean, here's the reality. Of the three players you just named, two are guards and one's a forward. So the forward doesn't have as much of a, like, natural argument to say, I need the ball in my hands. You know, I want these guys to be my predominant ball handlers, and I want to free up Randall to work outside, inside, be a better perimeter shooter, dominate in the mm-hmm. paint, move without the ball. Like he has to be able to do that to make the team better. And if he, you know, creates a funk for not having the ball in his hands enough or replicates basically the 2021 season where he was just an absolute cancer to the locker room and basically the on-field play, you know, he's going to hurt his trade value, which is going to make it harder for us to move on him from him. But 
I think at the core, we all understand that Julius Randle is as good a player as he wants to be, mm-hmm. as he feels like being if the other things are going well. Like the best season he gave us, he gave us when the fans didn't have access to him and he could play in <laughs> peace and quiet. And as soon as we got back, literally as soon as we got back, like even the end of that 2020 season, the wheels fell off. I hate to be that guy, but it's like it was a classic contract year from a guy up for a big deal who was playing for the money subconscious. And I mean that in a not negative way. Like It happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. It's just like human nature. When there's something dangling at the end of the journey, you're going to run a little harder, right? And it just feels like the fact that he was playing for a deal is a part of this. I really do hope that he can turn around. One more thing about the Knicks. I think that Hartenstein is going to be, is nobody's talking about him, but ask Clipper fans. They fucking love this guy. Great passer. Like, Great passing big man, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's like <laughs> Jokic, heart and sign, like is a pat, like uh, you know, uh, yeah, like I, I really feel, I, I just feel like he is in that, you know, maybe, uh, obviously that's crazy to say, but like at least as good as Sabonis as as a big man passer, which is elite. Like he really can swing it. Uh, his rim protection was unbelievable last season. Really, the issue is that the guy fouls a lot. I think if he can rein that in, look for Hartenstein and for Knicks fans to be clamoring for him to start at some point. Like, I just really think that that will happen. And to pick up on that point, when you talk about all of the hypothetical, you know, chemistry and meshing scenarios with the Knicks starting five, if we are able to swing a Mitchell trade without giving up too much of what made last season's bench as good as it was, then you think about how awful the Knicks starters played and how the bench would bring them back into games that they eventually lost by single digits. And you would look at those box scores and say, wow, imagine if the Knicks actually just had a decent starting five. If we acquire Mitchell without giving up too much of our young players, then we have a decent starting five that, albeit, will go through some inevitable growing pains and chemistry issues. But if we can keep that second unit intact... I think it's it played better defense last year that they'll be in a position to do so again. And the chemistry is on 100 on that bench unit. So I am excited about the prospect of the Mitchell trade, provided we can keep the players that, you know, the Knicks deem important. And I do think that there is a potential for a playoff roster overall. Like it would take the first and second units. The Knicks second unit is extremely important. Leon Rose and uh, Danny Ainge should collude and then just say, hey, just do a contract buyout with IQ. Let us try and get him on the back end. <laughs> yeah. Nobody colludes with his people like Leon Rose. <laughs> Leon Rose is getting his freaking homies paid. His son, Sam Rose, is Jalen Brunson's agent. Then they have Jalen's dad on the fucking, on the coaching roster, theoretically. I haven't heard more about that. Uh, now, you know, uh, the elder Brunson has been a coach for a while and has coached with Tom Thibodeau team. So it's not, not necessarily crazy, but again, hired his dad. We have his dad on the team. Like this Leon Rose just knows how to get his folks paid. His, he was a, an agent at CAA who was his client, Tom Thibodeau. This is just Leon Rose knows how to move in these circles. If you're Leon Rose's boy, you're going to get paid somehow on a deal. Hopefully that will translate to wins at some <laughs> yeah. point, but this is why you bring Leon Rose in because it's like he knows all these people. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully that all translates to a winning season for the New York Knicks. Coming up next, Bob Harrig from Sports Illustrated. 
Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The British Open came to a close this weekend after a heart-stopping duel between Cameron Smith and Rory McIlroy in the final round. Smith won the final tally of 20 under par, but the moment of the tournament, arguably, not arguably if you talk to my mom, but arguably uh, for everyone else, went to Tiger Woods during his really heart-wrenching walk down the 18th hole, his first time back at the competition since his car accident in uh, 2021. Here to recap scenes from the old course at St. Andrews, the birthplace of golf, is Bob Herrick, golf writer for Sports Illustrated, whose new book, Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry, is out wherever you get your books. Bob, welcome to Take Line. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Before we get into the open players who have joined live were well represented <laughs> in the tournament live golf tatted six of the top 20 after the first round of the open anyone stand out to you from that list of names dustin johnson i mean he had the best tournament and yeah <clears throat> you know really probably about uh midway through saturday's round i'd say he was still in contention he could have maybe won now he started the final round, I think, a little bit too far back, but he still ended up in the top seven. Actually, a good performance for him. He's been not been faring all that well uh, the last several months, but I think he showed he still got a lot of game. And, you know, they had some other guys do okay. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau actually had a top 10. Yeah. Uh, first time in a while. He's showing some form coming off a lot of injuries this year. But, you know, that's the next thing for those guys. How do they stay relevant? I mean, Brooks Kepka missed the cut. You know, Sergio Garcia kind of had a tough week. <laughs> yes. He had a good Friday, but he didn't have a great weekend. And he seemed to be, you know, in a bad mood, which for a guy who's making whatever kind of money he's making now, Sergio? He, should, he shouldn't be. <laughs> Yeah, so. my mom's least favorite golfer of all time. She <laughs> sent me an article from The Guardian over the weekend that um, had a quote from Sergio about how he, part of the reason, you know, according to him, part of the reason that he joined Live was he felt unloved uh, in his previous professional arrangement, <laughs> <rage> which... <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, Sergio, I, I've, I, I have a <laughs> lot of respect for his game, but a lot of the problems that have occurred, he's brought on himself. Yes. And it's really kind of a shame. I mean, if for some of these guys, I mean, I, you know, and I'm, I'm not necessarily against live so much as I am, you know, the attitude that they've shown in going to it. I mean, yeah. if you want to do this, go, go for it. It's okay. I mean, you know, we can, we can debate this funding and the reasons and all that other stuff, but you know, don't make it about because the PJ tour was so bad to you or the European tour, or you want more time at home or, you know, come on, it's about the money. It's a great opportunity. If you put it that way. 
It's about the money. It's a neat form of competition. It's smaller fields. It's a smaller week, you know, Yeah. and they're paying me a lot. What was the, um, you know, it, I, I couldn't help but think about how here we have, it's the 150th Open, it's birthplace of golf, and we've got a, a lot of people who have just joined like the latest professional evolution of the game of golf with Liv. What was the attitude, just the vibe around the Open concerning uh, live like how, what were the interactions like did you catch any of that energy yeah you know it's i think the best word to describe it is awkward mm. there's an awkwardness to all of this when the live guys come together with the non-live guys nobody knows how to quite know how to act and you know the rna made it clear that they're not happy with the whole situation the usga was much more neutral about it Mm. When it took place at the U.S. Open here, the RNA, the chief executive, Martin Slumbers, made it clear before the tournament. They think that live is not good for the long term health of the game. And they didn't shy away from the fact that they might look into ways to make it harder for those guys to play the Open or other majors. You know, they disinvited Greg Norman. They told Phil Mickelson, you can come to the champions activities, but we don't think you should. You know, that's that's pretty strong. You know, and that's yeah. going to make for some bad feelings. You know, no matter where you stand on the issue of live golf, and there's certainly tons of reasons to be negative about it. I get it. I'm just not sure that that's how these guys should be treated. Phil Mickelson won the tournament several years ago. He's an iconic player in the game. He's a Hall of Famer for 10 years almost. And because we don't like what he's done or people don't like what he's done, we're going to treat him that way. I mean, I know some people think it's great and some people think they should be treated that way. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure. Listen, I have my own feelings about about, uh, what Liv represents and the reasons for doing it. At the same time, it's... It's right there in the name, Open, British Open. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, the it seems open, like- The Open, the Open. The Open. You're calling it wrong by their standards, you know? Yeah. The Open, it's it's the one and only, or you know, the best, whatever, the first. It's not really open if you're going to try to limit guys from getting in. I think that's probably, I'm interrupting you there, but I think that's probably what- No, no, you're right. But you're going to. Yeah, it just feels like definitionally, your game, your tournament, your event has changed definitionally if if you are now going to limit guys for a choice they made, however we feel about it. Let's talk about something positive and really amazing, which is Ian Poulter's 163-foot putt for an eagle on hole nine. Can you put into context, maybe for people who aren't golf fans on the level of of you or my mom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) of how difficult that is and what it means to be able to capture that on camera? Yeah, I know. How about that? The old course is unique because... It's got to just be the ultimate coincidence, but there are seven greens that are, are double greens. So 14 holes are contained over seven greens. And the ones that do this add up to 18, two and 16, three and 15, four and 14, five and 13, six and 12. Nine is the only one out there that's by itself, 10 and eight. But almost all of them, they're really, really big. And so, you know, you can't have a 163-foot putt on most greens in the United States. They're just not that big. So for a camera to follow that and for even a player to be able to get it anywhere close, it's pretty amazing, you know. And there were some long putts made. There's some long, great lag putting. Frankly, that's one of the things that hurt Tiger. His lag putting was poor. Yeah, It's one of the things that hurt Rory on Sunday, not so much the putting, but he wasn't close enough. 
So the place is really unique in that regard. And it's, I think it's just one of the features that makes it so special. Let's talk about Tiger. Missed the cut. <clears throat> Obviously is uh, struggling with his health. My mom's favorite golfer. She calls him her first son. She had tears oh. in her eyes as he walked off. It seemed like everybody really understood how precious these moments where Tiger appears at these mm -hmm. things are. What was the feeling there? You captured very well right there. These are precious moments. We don't know how many more we're going to get to see. And that sort of bubbled to the surface on Friday, you know, when he walked across the Swoken Bridge and waved and then walked up to the green. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how long that took, a minute or 90 seconds to get up there, but man, it felt like a long time. And that ovation he got just never stopped. So I don't think it's the end, but I think it was a moment that we should kind of makes you take pause. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there's not going to be much more of this. He's going to keep trying. I would expect that if there's the improvement that we think there can be, then he will try to play a little bit more next year. He'll add a few tournaments because what we're seeing is he can't do this and be prepared. Right. You know, it's remarkable he made the cut at the Masters and the PGA. He just did it on sheer guts. Yeah. Um, and he showed a lot of guts this past week, too, because he prepared more than he had at those tournaments. He played more practice yeah. rounds. But for some reason, it didn't translate into his game. I watched him a lot in practice. I thought he actually looked pretty good, you know. And he gets a bad break on the first hole. And a colleague of mine at Golf Digest, Dan Rappaport, I thought, summed that up very well, that ball in the divot and then the ball goes in the water. He said, it's great to have a plan, but it's like fighting Mike Tyson. What's your plan when you get smacked in the face? <laughs> and it's almost like, you know, Tiger didn't have a plan for that. And it threw him off, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I'm certainly not making excuses for him. You can recover from a double bogey. But it was a shock to the system. And there you are. Like, he just was never able to get it going after that. So it was, you know, the home of golf. He knows he might not ever play a tournament there again. It was pretty neat. Yeah. Only Tiger knows what's going on physically with Tiger. But in terms of his game, what would you, when you say, I don't think he's done, what are you seeing that tells you, oh, maybe there's something still in the tank there? He gets the ball out there off the tee. He's not lost significant yardage. He's, you know, he doesn't hit it with Rory. Yeah. But he hits it over 300 yards. He can still shape shots with his irons. When his iron game is on, he's still one of the best. It just wasn't on last week. And then he wasn't able mm -hmm. to make up for it with a short game that was not strong. He was very rusty, I thought, with his chipping and putting. I think we saw that at the PGA as well. The chip shots from around the green that we're used to seeing him hit to two, three, four feet are going at six, seven, eight feet. And now you're putting pressure on your putter and you're not making enough putts. And I think that's what happened with Tiger. He's just, and then he just never got the speed of the greens there that were slower. This has always been a problem with Tiger. He's used to fast greens. He doesn't putt well on slow greens and he didn't adjust. How many times did he leave a putt short? He must have three putted six or seven times over the two days. And if you clean that up, his old coach, Hank Haney, used to say that when Tiger, back in the day, when he didn't three-putt, he was almost unbeatable. He saw three-putting as more the issue for him than anything wrong with his swing. Certainly, you could argue that he put himself in bad positions to three-putt, possibly. Mm. But still, like, you know, sometimes you three-putt from 20 feet, and 20 feet's a good approach. 
So that's where it is. I think the driver's very good. The, the long clubs are fine. He's going to hit his share of fairways and miss his share. If he's hitting greens with long irons, great. But you're going to miss some and you need to get it up and down. And then you got to make some putts. And he's not had a great putting tournament, you know. And well, look, he only played nine rounds this year. He, he never really had a great putting round. Let's go to the duel that won it for Cameron Smith, came down to Cameron Smith versus Rory McIlroy. It was another disheartening letdown for Rory. And in particular, uh, I'm thinking of the fact that, man, he was getting so much support from that crowd. Mm -hmm. They wanted it for him. They were pulling for him. What was your opinion of the duel? You know, tell us tell us your feelings as it came down the stretch there and then Cameron eventually won it. I, I mean, Rory still had a lead on the 11th hole, 12th hole. I mean, yeah. I, I just think I always thought he was going to win. You know, and he wasn't playing bad. It's not like he hit it in a bunker and made a bogey early on or hit some wayward shot. And we said, oh, no, what's going on? He wasn't doing that. He was hitting all the greens. In fact, he hit all 18 greens. There's probably not an example of a guy leading a tournament, a major who hits all 18 greens in the last round and gets beat. He said afterwards, I feel like I didn't do much wrong today. And I think he's absolutely right. He also said he didn't feel like he did much right. And that's probably that's the key yeah. because yeah. he did hit all those greens, but he didn't hit it close enough. Some of those greens, he was very close off the tee. They're short par fours. So it's almost like you're trying to get up and down and he wasn't able to do that. He had no one putts, 36 yeah. putts. He hit 18 greens, 36 putts. You know, he shot 70. And that's because he hit it on a par five and two and he hit it on a par four and one and two putted both of those. So it's almost like, you know, he needed to drive the 18th green. He needed to drive a couple of the short par four greens and make easy birdies. And he wasn't able to get home into it at the 14th hole, another par five. It's just really an odd, strange occurrence to not play bad leading a major by four. You know, Victor Hovland was tied with him, but it wasn't Victor who beat him. It was a guy who came from four back on a guy who hit all the greens and he still lost. It's almost flukish, really. And what Cameron Smith did wasn't flukish. I mean, he shot 30 on the back nine. He had five straight birdies. He shot 64 after shooting 64 on Friday and seemingly shooting himself out of it Saturday with 73. I mean, it's just when you say that golf is a strange game, I think there's some great examples that we just <laughs> yeah. saw right there. I love Rory. It's hard to not wonder what is it going to take for him to break through in one of these majors since winning the PGA in 2014. Incidents like this, games like this, rounds like this, where it's not like he blows up. It's not like the wheels come off, but he just can't break through. What is going on? What can allow Rory to break through in one of these big tournaments? Well, for the majority of those eight years, he wasn't really giving himself a chance on Sunday. The 2018 Masters with Patrick Reed, he was in the final group. He was several shots back. Missed a short eagle putt on two and never really recovered and really wasn't in it on the back nine. There's not many places you can point to where he was right there. Even at the Masters this year, he, yeah. you know, he shot 64 the last day. How much would he have killed for that yesterday? The 64 at the Masters, which is really, let's be honest, it's a better score than a 64 at St. Andrews. But he was too far back. He still lost by two to a guy who four putted the last green. And Scotty Scheffler, he really wasn't in it. So there hasn't been that many times where he's been there on Sunday. That's been more of the issue. Now he's getting himself there. He's had good starts to the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, and the Open. Was in those tournaments. He kind of fell off a little at the PGA and got a little bit too far back. 
he had a slight chance on Sunday at the U.S. Open. Obviously, he's in the mix here. If I'm him, I keep doing what he's doing. Just keep doing it. You know, you're. I don't think there's a whole lot you have to change. You know, he's played some pretty good golf here. I think part of what happened Sunday was bad luck. Finally, Bob, tell us about your new book, which is out today, Tiger and Phil Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry. Tell us about what inspired this book and any kind of fun nuggets that you unearthed along the way. Yeah, listen, I appreciate it. The book's been out for a little while now, and it's funny to me how these two guys remain relevant. I'll be honest, when I was putting it together, I was sort of thinking of it as while I left the door open for more, I kind of was looking at it as closure. I left the door open for more, maybe more good golf. Instead, what it's turned into is they're on opposite sides of this big live golf issue. And you had Tiger making a great return and Phil not playing. I had to kind of have the book done by January. Nobody could have predicted that Phil wouldn't play in two majors and Tiger would at that point. So, but the inspiration for the book was really Tiger's 2019 Masters win. You know, I was like, man, what a, just an incredible victory that was. I don't want to say it came out of nowhere, but for once, he wasn't expected to win. He was in the mix. Yeah. Wasn't expected to win. Kepka was there. Dustin Johnson was there. Molinari, who beat him at the Open the year before, was there. Tony Finau played within the last group. Webb Simpson was up there. I mean, Bubba Watson, there was a lot of good players around. It's not dissimilar to Nicholas in 86 at the Masters when yeah. it was yeah. Norman, Price, Tom Kite, Seve. And after that was over, I kind of started thinking there might be a, a book about that. And then I thought, you know what? Nobody's really tackled Tiger and Phil as a rivalry. And look, we could dissect whether or not it was a rivalry. And I admit sure. that in the book. It's <laughs> like, is, did it, was anybody a rival to Tiger? You could certainly argue no if you wanted to. But I think it was a little bit more nuanced than just the record. They were sort of the two guys for 25 years. People came along and took their shots. Retief Goosen, Padraig Harrington, you know, those guys won majors. But Tiger and Phil were always sort of there. Mm. And they were compared against each other. And Tiger had that big lead, eight to nothing in majors. And then Phil kind of fought back. You know, he didn't, wasn't ever going to get close, but he did fight back. They had a lot of great sort of interaction or non-interaction There was a lot of pettiness between them. You know, there was was. a lot of kind of tension. You know, there's a Ryder Cup where they were teammates and that was a disaster in 2004. And, you know, Tiger always sort of tried to keep Phil at a distance. You know, Tiger took great glee when Phil was not part of the PGA Championship that Tiger lost by a stroke to Rich Beam all the way back in 2002, 20 years ago. At that point, Phil didn't have a major yet. And then, of course, as I'm writing the book, Phil wins a major. He won the PGA last year, which became another chapter in the book. So I just think their relationship, it's it's interesting how they sort of at the top of the game, but very much at arm's length. At times, they became friendly due to the Ryder Cup as they got older. And now they're probably not friendly again. So I could probably write an addendum if there's a paperback because uh, (laughs) the the story continues. It absolutely does. He is Bob Herrick, golf writer for Sports Illustrated. His book, Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry, is out now. Buy it wherever you buy books. Bob, thanks for joining Take Line. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, 
and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Sunday marked 150 days of incarceration for Brittany Griner. She's currently languishing in a Russian prison. This despite increasing and constant public pressure from the WNBA and Griner and her supporters, her family. Griner pleaded guilty to possession of illegal substances on July 7th. And since then, the White House has stated that the Biden administration is working towards Griner's release. But the timeline, of course, remains unknown. Here to shed light on Griner's case is William Butler, professor of law at Penn State University. William, welcome to Take Line. Thank you for the invitation. Have you been following the Brittany Griner case? And what's your assessment of what you're seeing there? I have been following it as much as one can from outside, of course. Yes. I think so far it's a trial that is proceeding in more or less the normal way for a accusation of this particular kind. So there have been no surprises, really. Uh, We'll see what happens from the new evidence that the defense introduced last week with respect to a doctor's prescription for marijuana. Mm. A friend of mine who was in a mild diplomatic situation with a different country uh, where the State Department and the embassy had to get involved told me as the Brittany Griner case was unfolding over the previous weeks and months that if her side goes public, that means it's going poorly. Is that your sense? You know, once over here in the States, friends and family and supporters of Griner started making a public appeal, what can you take from that as an indicator of, of anything behind the scenes? Well, it's hard to judge, of course, because it is behind the scenes. But yeah, I think with respect to Russia, the public appeal was an effort to generate domestic political support for Brittany. I don't think it had much to do with the Russians themselves. And it was successful to the extent that it succeeded in moving the case within the Department of State from the ordinary consular officers to the section of the Department of State that is specifically concerned with people that are classified under an act of Congress as unlawfully detained. What's your view of this case? You know, from the outside looking in, this feels manifestly political, as part of the larger, you know, geopolitical machinations regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But maybe it's just a drug case. I mean, what is your view of how Russia is positioning Ms. Greiner's case? I don't see anything specifically political in it at the moment. It was unfortunate for her that she happened to arrive at Shedemetyeva Airport in Moscow on the 17th of February just a week before events in Ukraine took place. That doesn't help the situation at all, especially from 
the standpoint of a, a political resolution of it. But as far as the event itself is concerned, she arrived with the substance in her luggage. It was discovered by a sniffer dog. Uh, the customs authorities then opened the luggage and detained her for what is under the criminal code of the Russian Federation, Article 229, Prime 1, smuggling of a narcotic substance. It was an article that was introduced in 2011 and actually took effect in 2012 because they had to define the amounts of substance that were involved under the code. It makes a difference how much you bring in of a narcotic substance, whether it's a significant amount, which is the lowest, and a large amount, which is in the middle, or an especially large amount, which is the highest. And it affects the range of punishments that are applicable in the event of a conviction. Ms. Greiner pled guilty on July 7th, clearly in hopes of expediting uh, this process, hopefully speeding her way towards a release. What was your read on that plea in the context of the, of the Russian law system? This is a misunderstanding of Russian law. Russian criminal law has no pleas. What she did was acknowledge her guilt. There were at least two places during the proceedings in which she could do that. She was asked at the beginning of the proceedings whether she wished to acknowledge her guilt, and she was silent, as she had every right to be. Then the second time when she was asked, it was at the end of the prosecution presenting its case. So then she said what she said. Uh, she acknowledged her guilt. It has no procedural consequences whatsoever. It doesn't accelerate anything. It's just the position she's taking. So she's taking that position in part because that's the reality of the prosecution's case, and in part because now the, her defense is going to make a strong plea as much strongly as they can for leniency. Her legal team has submitted a letter to the court saying that she had been given medical clearance for this substance. So I assume that that process is ongoing. You mentioned that framing it as a guilty plea is a misunderstanding of the Russian law system. I think that, you know, for a lot of us, you know, we think Russia and we think this kind of despotic regime ruled over by a single person with various powerful courtiers assisting him, a legal system, what could that possibly be? What is the position of the Russian legal system within the governmental framework of Russia? How does it work within Russian society in contrast to the American legal system, which I think we're all kind of familiar with in a kind of instinctive way? The Russian legal system is much closer to the continental model than it is to the Anglo-American model. So its criminal law procedures are very similar to those in France or Germany or Italy or elsewhere. And that's a system that places great emphasis upon the investigation. Investigation is usually a lengthy process. The investigator is required to do more than our prosecution investigators are required to do. Really, he has to be, or she as the case may be, absolutely convinced of the guilt of the person under investigation. So they get a high level of rate of convictions as a result of that. They won't go to trial if they think they're going to lose it. What else can one say? It's a system that doesn't place so much emphasis upon the right of an individual to be released shortly after being taken into custody. Their system is exactly the opposite. They tend to keep a person in custody unless and until the investigation is, is concluded and they decide there's no reason to pursue matters. Ms. Greiner was not eligible for bail. That's under the Code of Criminal Procedure. And that's because she's a foreigner and she has no place of permanent residence in Russia. And in her case, she was in transit. 
She was in Moscow to change planes for Ekaterinburg. So, of course, she had no place of residence in Moscow. Under the Code of Criminal Procedure, that an individual in that position is not eligible for bail. Russian media has been speculating that officials might negotiate some sort of swap involving Victor Boot, the so-called merchant of death arms dealer who's currently serving a 25-year sentence in the U.S. for, you know, illegally selling heavy weaponry to a terror group. One would imagine that if such a thing is being floated in Russian media, that there is a non-zero chance that this is some sort of message that's being sent from the Russian government to the American State Department uh, back channel, so to speak. Uh, How likely do you see something like that as being a solution to this? Well, if we decide that we're willing to swap Mr. Boot for somebody else, of course, it could be more than one person. That's one thing. And it could be other individuals who are serving time at the moment who have been convicted. Remember, Ms. Greiner's not been convicted yet. She's innocent until right. proven guilty. We don't know what's going to happen in her particular case. We'll know more in a week or so. So a swap uh, leaves a lot of options to both sides. If they decide that they have something that each other wants, they may do it. If they don't, it's not going to happen. How did your interest in, in Russian law develop? If you could take us through your history with the Russian law system and anything, you know, what are some of the more interesting points that people perhaps not versed in Russian law might find uh, fascinating? Well, I describe myself usually as a product of the Sputnik era in late 50s when Russia launched itself into space to the astonishment of everybody else around the planet. And there was a great emphasis upon Soviet studies at that time. We greatly expanded the study of the Russian language. We made uh, it possible for people to specialize in Soviet affairs to a much greater extent than had been previously the case. It came along at that moment in time. So I've specialized in Russian law for well over five decades. And uh, that means I've been through the post-Stalin period and the Gorbachev period and the post-Gorbachev period, which we're now in. And they've all been fascinating each in their own way. Yeah. Certainly this period feels like, and I think overtly is, a reaction to the kind of dissolution of the Gorbachev and post-Gorbachev era. Looking ahead, do you see that, the kind of like larger politics affecting the Griner case in any way? And then how do you see this wrapping up? Her next hearing is July 26th. It's expected that the court case might wrap by August sometime. What would be the next steps in this? Well, the present delay to the 26th of July is at the request of the defense. So they plainly have more material to submit or presumably other witnesses remains to be seen. But that gets close to the end. Uh, Ms. Griner will have the right of last word. And however she chooses to make her statement to the court, that is her. Right? No, it would be as long as she wishes to speak. She may not speak long through an interpreter, but she has the right to say what she wants to say. And then the court will retire and will make uh, its judgment, which will include verdict and sentence, and we'll just have to see how they play it. If it goes to a swap, then of course a swap is an intensely political issue. And there will be Arguments on our side and arguments on the Russian side as to whether they want to do it and why they want to do it and what they want to do it for, etc. Of course, if there is a conviction and either side is unhappy with the conviction or the sentence, 
there's a right of appeal. It happens fairly quickly in the Russian system. So we'll see how that plays out. What are your, just, you know, I, I know you probably don't want to speculate, but from my perspective, you know, watching kind of uh, rivalry, uh, certainly the geopolitical conflict between the U.S. and the West and Russia over a variety of different matters, with this case potentially being just one small piece on a much larger board, what are the actual odds that Ms. Griner presents all her evidence and that it exonerates her? Let's say she got clearance to bring a certain amount of the substance in and she was below that amount and brought it in and that's documented. Would she actually win the case? Like, I guess what I'm asking is, is there any world in which she wins her case? (laughs) Just outright. Documentary evidence or no? Right. I presume you mean an acquittal. Yes, that's what I mean. Right. The challenge here is that medical evidence goes strongly towards leniency, but the criminal code does not make allowance for medical prescription of marijuana or any other narcotic substance. That's the reality. So her counsel will use this as a very strong, and it is a very strong, mitigating factor in her situation. The more likely probability is that there will be a a conviction, and then the question is, what will be the sentence? And the minimum here is five years. Wow. Our media have said up to 10, but they're leaving out the five minimum bit. Um, But the court can go below that if it considers that there are appropriate circumstances to do so. And that's really what her defense is attempting to plead as strongly as they possibly can. Well, uh, that is a bracing news report. Uh, He is William Butler, professor of law at Penn State University and expert on Russian law. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk again. Anytime. Happy to do so. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out my pop culture, nerd culture podcast, X-Ray Vision, which comes out every Friday, wherever you get your podcast. Check it out. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef, and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.